The Sermon on the Mount is classic, classic moral literature for everybody of all religions and all faiths because it invokes the general principles of what it means to be a human being, to be kind and merciful and loving and forgiving. And And he was even confronted at one time and asked him, what is the essence of the law of God? And he answered beautifully, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind and all that's in you. And this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto love your neighbor as yourself. It's always surprised me, since I've gotten more involved with the church, how many people it takes. It does. Uh, to make sure that when the church fills up with people, that mass can even happen. That's right. Uh, it is. It's a, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you're not aware of, really, when you just kind of come in, you know. Red is a sign of a cardinal. Cardinals were originally uh, supposed to realize that they were supposed to be always willing to give their life for the church. So red is the color of blood. And so that's where we get that. that oh, color. okay. That's where that came from. Here's your host. Good evening and welcome. I'm Tony Miller with KCDM and I'll be your host for the show this evening. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pastor's Perspective. We are in the third week of Ordinary Time and we'll be previewing the Gospel of Matthew for the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. And introducing the posse tonight, we have Father Mike at the mic. <laughs> I guess so. We had, uh, we had Father James here, and we were getting ready to go, and he got called away on an emergency. So, And Father Marty, he is away at his niece's basketball game tonight. Number two going against number five oh, or something boy. like that. That's so, great. Uh, he wanted to be there to support her. Mm -hmm. So so you're stuck with me tonight. So we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to be the dynamic duo tonight, Mike. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, the only thing we have in news and notes tonight is uh, we wanted to mention Catholic Schools Week is coming up here uh, January 29th through February 4th. Uh, they take a week and celebrate Catholic schools and uh, do a lot of good things. We're going to try to get, uh, we've got a class working on some essays and we're going to have the kids read those essays for us, and we're going to put those on the air on the radio station. That's a good so, deal. Yeah, they're always very good. Uh, so it's always fun to hear what the what the students think of the Catholic schools. Um, and Father Mike, you have our uh, opening prayer to get us started tonight? I do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here tonight, uh, as, as brief as we are, as little as we may be. But we ask you to be with us uh, as we investigate the Sermon on the Mount. Give us the grace to live by these precepts and help us to realize that you give them to us so that we might be made perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect or as you are perfect. Help us to understand the meaning of these words so that we might truly live by them. We ask all of this now through Christ our Lord. Amen. amen. In the name of the Father, Father the Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. amen. Thank you, Father Mike. Uh, tonight, 
I was going to say the posse, but uh, Father Mike and I will discuss Matthew's reading for the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Uh, that's chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And uh, in this reading, Jesus goes up the mountain and delivers his Sermon on the Mount, telling us all who suffer or struggle for his name's sake will receive a great reward in heaven. And uh, Father James was going to do the reading, but uh, we've, we've handed off to Father Mike tonight. Thank you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father Mike. The Sermon on the Mount is probably one of Jesus' more uh, famous and familiar uh, sermons. Um, the gospel says that his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Uh, was he just speaking to his disciples or was he addressing them or everyone in the crowd as well? Oh, I think he was definitely addressing everybody and not only everybody in the crowd, but everybody who would listen down through the ages. And you're right. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is classic classic moral literature for everybody of all religions, of all faiths, because it invokes the general principles of what it means to be a human being, to be kind and merciful and loving and forgiving. And uh, th these are all great moral principles that every, every uh, person of faith, of any faith, can ascribe to. The, the other way we refer to these, the Sermon on the Mount, or, or it's also known as the Beatitudes. Right. It comes from the Latin Beatus, which means blessed. It's interesting because for many, many years, it, that's was the way it was referred to, blessed are those and so forth. And then later on, when they wanted to make it a little bit more relevant, I guess, from some perspective, they called it happy are those who do this or happy are those who mm -hmm. do that. Uh, associate the fact that the people who are blessed are also happy. <laughs> Jesus didn't give this speech from a mountain on accident, did he? <laughs> Probably not. No, he, they didn't have uh, loudspeaker systems and microphones and all those kinds of things in those days. So he had to be in a place where he would be heard. And so he gave it from the mountain. He went up from the side of the mountain, if you will. So he would be in a position where his voice would be amplified. Uh, but it also has a spiritual context, you know. In order to follow these moral precepts, you have to be willing to climb the mountain. Uh, he's asking us to go beyond ourselves uh, in a spiritual way as well as a physical way. Right. We have to be willing to follow him up the mountain. Follow him up the mountain, right.
So living and, and living a moral life takes effort and determination. It's something that you have to work at. It's not something that just happens. It doesn't come naturally. No, it, uh, there are natural moral virtues naturally, but, uh, uh, it, it, it takes effort. It, it takes, uh, there's something in the human being that uh, strives against that, and we have to recognize that. And it seems like everything in today's society is working against Very us. Very much so. so. Very much so. Yeah. How do we how do we commit ourselves to making the the, the journey up the mountain in in today's society? Well, I think we have to realize first of all who we are and where we're from. You know, we're created in the image and likeness of God. That we come from God that we have a moral a moral sense. We know the difference between right and wrong. There is such a thing as right, and there is such a thing as wrong. And uh, we have to pay attention to that, that those moral guidelines that we have within us. Even a little child uh, has an awareness of that. I know when I'm hearing confessions, first confessions, we just had first confessions here at, at Divine Mercy Parish, and uh, you have these little kids, <laughs> six, seven years old, and they come in and and uh, they usually don't have too much to say at first. They're a little nervous. And you can always start them out by saying, have you ever done anything wrong? And sometimes you get the most ingenious reactions to them. <laughs> they, they really, they, I had one child one time, they just burst into tears. And I thought, oh my gosh, what did I do here? I was just uh, trying to, I gave them guilt without, without them really being guilty. But they were very much aware of the fact of they had done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And they had a moral conscience, even at a tender age of six or seven years old. And uh, sometimes as we grow older, we can, we can somehow stymie that conscience by not paying attention to the moral law, by not paying attention to the gospel. But it's still there, whether we pay attention to it or not. Are there any of the Beatitudes, Father Mike, that strike you or stand out for you? I mean, do you have a favorite Beatitude? or? <laughs> Father James would say that I like the one about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for their reward will be great in heaven. <laughs> that's only because he thinks that I think that I'm persecuted by him. But that's not really true. I like, I like them all, of course. You can't help but... Uh, be appreciative of the beauty of the Beatitudes, the meek, the suffering, the those who are forgiving. Uh, these are all beautiful moral standards that we should all follow. And uh, the more you get into following them, the more you appreciate uh, how truly human they make you. And uh, that comes from from Christ himself. And so it's a great gift. Yeah, it kind of struck me when I was reading them that the, the first first four or five um, are kind of uh, can be grouped into the the poor and the disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of them can be grouped more into a, um, a moral or a spiritual uh, struggle, sure. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was kind of interesting that even in the Beatitudes, Jesus was able to group and target specific groups Absolutely. of people. And he's always on the side of the poor and the suffering. He's always on the side of those who are, are suffering. And I think that's important for us today to remember in a special way. So where does the Sermon on the Mount rank in uh, importance of speeches or sermons that Jesus delivered? Is it- oh, I think it's, it's for, for those who follow Christ, those who really have the same faith that he gave us, 
it's it's paramount. It's right up there at the very top. But even for those who don't have the same faith, um, from a from a purely natural standpoint, uh, these these remarks of Christ, these injunctions of Christ, are are very high in the moral order, and all all moralists would recognize how important they are. And the it seems like the Sermon on the Mount is is kind of a um, it kind of turns the Jewish laws and the Jewish traditions on their head a little bit, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Well, there's a big contrast between uh, the Jewish laws and Jewish regulations that for many were uh, based on fulfilling the details of the law rather than anything else. Whereas when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, you see that he is going to the heart of the law. Um, our Lord is trying to show that uh, it's our intention to uh, to fulfill not just the details, the minutiae, every jot and tittle, as they used to say, of the law, but it's important that we get to the heart of the law. And, and he was even confronted at one time and asking, what is the essence of the law of God? And he answered beautifully, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind and all that's in you. And this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. So uh, that encapsulates the essence of the whole law of God. And the old Jewish laws were more thou shalt not and uh, more things not to do or things to abstain from doing rather Fulfilling than... Fulfilling all the details. Yeah. Know, checking all the boxes, making sure that you've got everything done without much reference at all to uh, why you fulfill the details, what's important. Mm -hmm. All right. That will wrap up our discussion for Sunday's Gospel, unless you've got more you want to add. Well, surprisingly, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are just tuning in, uh, Father Mike and I are uh, the dynamic duo tonight. We're gathered around the table tonight at St. John's Rectory. Thanks for joining us for the show. We're happy you tuned in. Uh, The second half of our show tonight, uh, we're going to have a discussion uh, about the church's organization, an organization that has 1.2 billion members uh, of the church. Um, It's a monumental task to run anything that big. Uh, We're going to kind of try to pick it apart a little bit and uh, see if we can kind of figure out how this thing works and uh, what makes it tick. So, well, let's start off with... uh, what Catholic Church means. Catholic is the the same thing as the universal, it means that the church is universal. Right. That it's uh, the same all over the world and that you can go anywhere on a Sunday in the world and get the same mass. Right. Does that vary at all in, in different countries and different areas of the world? Well, there are various traditions within the Catholic Church. There are, very, there are various rites within the Catholic Church. Uh, probably the best way we could begin by describing them is divided between the East and the West. Uh, in the Western part of the church, in Europe and in Africa and in Latin America and North America, you'll see a distinct difference than what you will find in the Middle East or in the Far East. Uh, and that goes back to history. Uh, the church is a direct result of uh, 
we believe our Lord saying that, uh, that he was commissioning his apostles to go out and preach the gospel to, the, to all the nations. And they scattered after his, after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And they went to different parts of the known world. And that has gone, been going on now for 2,000 years. And so you'll see the Catholic Church today uh, in, in its different expressions in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. We are in the Western Church. We would, we, yeah, we would consider ourselves in the Western, Western part of the Church. Church yeah. And it's all Roman Catholic because the headquarters of the church is in Rome. Peter, who was appointed by Jesus to be the shepherd, <clears throat> shepherd of the church, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He went to Antioch and was bishop of Antioch, and then he went to Rome, and he was martyred in Rome. And so it's called the Roman Catholic Church uh, because of the fact that he was in Rome. And also the successors of St. Peter, the ones who became bishops of Rome after him, 200 and how many did you say? Did yeah, two, 266. Pope Francis is the 266th Pope. 266 Popes from, from the year 33 all the way down to 2023. And uh, the successors of the of, are the successors of Peter, and they are called popes because they eventually in time, uh, the Bishop of Rome uh, was called Papa, the Father. And today we refer to him as the Holy Father, not because of his own personal holiness, we certainly hope that he has that, but because of the office that he holds. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, is the, he is the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome, and head of the whole Catholic Church. I've also heard him called the Holy See. Where does the, the Holy See come from? The Holy See, the word Holy See refers to the government of the church, uh, the government actually oh, okay. of, of the Vatican. Um, up until 1929, uh, the church was just part of the city of Rome. I mean, the, the administration of the church was just part of the city of Rome. And then an agreement was made with the government of Italy at that time to give that one or two square mile uh, territory in the middle of Rome, uh, to set that up as a separate city-state. And that was called the Vatican. It was called the Vatican because it's built on the Vatican Hill. There are seven hills in Rome. They're a little bit hard to find now because of modern <laughs> technology. But uh, if you've ever walked around Rome, you'll know that there are seven hills of Rome. And one of them was the Vatican Hill. And uh, that was where the government of the Catholic Church uh, was situated. And so they made that into a city-state. It's the smallest city-state in the world, and yet it's one of the most active. The Vatican is its own country. It is its own country with its own administration, its own post office, its own civil service. Uh, It's quite a place to visit. You can walk all around it in a very short time. I did some research on the internet. You can actually trace the popes. All 266 of them are documented. That's right. And when they served, when they became pope, when they died, um, and when they were succeeded. Yeah. Uh, clear back to Peter. All the way back to Peter. Yeah, we could do that. So. Um, and I was I was just fascinated by that. I'd never looked it up before and gone into that. And many of them are buried right right in the Vatican itself, you know. Uh, not only is the Vatican named after the hill upon which the church government is, is situated, but uh, uh, the Vatican is uh, that, that hill 
used to be during the Roman emperor's time, during Nero's time, that was a burial place. It was a big cemetery there. And tradition holds that St. Peter himself is buried there. We know for sure that he is buried there. Uh, tradition always said that he was buried under St. Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's mm -hmm. Church there. Uh, but after World War II, they did some excavations there. <clears throat> and they found a red wall underneath St. Peter's. I've been there myself. And uh, in Latin, on the red wall, it says, Peter is here. And they went into that with the permission of the Pope. And they found the bones of a first century man. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we believe that St. Peter is buried right under the main altar of St. Peter's Church. Hmm. Interesting. I, I also was curious to know with, with John Paul II uh, being uh, recognized as a saint and with the death of Pope uh, Benedict here recently, he'll probably be elevated to a saint at some point too. But I, I got to wondering how many of those 266 popes have been made saints. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that a total of 83 popes have been recognized universally as canonized saints, including all of the first 35 popes mm -hmm. and 31 of whom were martyred yes. and 52 of the first 54 popes were made saints. Mm -hmm which that's, that's, pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good percentage. <laughs> you have to remember that that was a period of great persecution in the church. Mm -hmm. So many of these people didn't live very long because they were, they were killed. Uh, and, of course, the quickest, the quickest route to sainthood in the Catholic Church is martyrdom. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of permanent, however. It's permanent, yeah. And it's a pretty good indication that the person was... Uh, was very loyal to the teachings of the faith. So after um, 266 popes, there has to be a process to replace a pope, right? right. So what, let's talk a little bit about the process of electing a pope. As I understand it, only cardinals can vote for a pope. That's right, yeah. Maybe we should go down through the ranks of, the, of what the, the various people in the church that might be a little bit confusing. The Pope is the head of the Universal Church. Uh, he wears white. He's very easily recognizable. He can come from any country in the world. He doesn't necessarily have to be Italian, although most of our Popes were Italian because the Church was located in Italy, in Rome, mm -hmm. and centralized in Rome. And so, uh, uh, but after Pope, we have a role called Cardinal. It comes with the Latin word cardis, which means... Uh, uh, connective or something that uh, hinges uh, something to something else. A cardinal is uh, an advisor to the Pope. Uh, it's, he's a churchman, usually a bishop. doesn't have to be a bishop, but usually he's a bishop. And he's named by the Pope to help advise the Pope in running the church. Uh, you mentioned earlier how how large the church is, so it needs quite a, quite a few people to help advise the Pope on, on running the various aspects of the church. He can't do it all by himself. Below a cardinal is an archbishop, and an archbishop is a bishop of a larger territory, usually, or a historic territory in the church. And so you'll see in the United States, for instance, all the major cities, the large cities of the United States uh, have archbishops. Mm -hmm. And below a bishop is an archbishop is a bishop who's a, the shepherd of a particular area of the church known as a diocese. And in Iowa, we have four dioceses and one archbishop. 
one archdiocese, and that's in Dubuque, probably because Dubuque was one of the earliest settled Catholic areas uh, in, the, in the state of Iowa. So we have four dioceses in Iowa, that would be diocese, Archdiocese of Dubuque, a Diocese of Davenport that we're in right now, and the Diocese of Sioux City, and the Diocese of Des Moines. The four of these, these four dioceses make up uh, a province, and the head of the province is always an archbishop. So the head of the province of Iowa would be the Archbishop of Dubuque. And uh, so that doesn't mean he has any more. It sounds kind of strange in a way. It sounds like he's a, a super bishop or something, but an <laughs> archbishop is, is just, uh, he's the leader of the group when they all get together. So uh, whenever they have a meeting and all the bishops are together, he's the chairman of the board, if you will, or something like that. So, and then below our bishop would be pastor. Um, each diocese is divided into deaneries, and I suppose we can talk about that a little later on. But uh, in, in each deanery is divided into parishes, and each parish has a pastor. And if it's a big parish, uh, you might have two or three assistant priests or vicars, they call them. And then below that, you have deacons. And the deacons assist the priests in what they can do. A deacon can do everything a priest can do except hear confessions and say mass. He can have baptisms and weddings and funerals and all the rest of that. And they're very, very helpful. And then uh, below a uh, deacon, we have uh, uh, seminarians who are young men who are uh, on the way to the priesthood or studying to be priests. And where do altar servers fit into the, the, the hierarchy? <laughs> altar servers are boys or girls who uh, assist us in our liturgical ceremonies. I mean, ultimately, you have you have altar servers that help make the church work. You have uh, lectors, lectors, uh, Eucharistic ministers, Eucharistic ministers who uh, help give out communion, take communion to the sick in the hospital, and all that. Yeah, cantors and uh, music musicians. Right. Um, it's always surprised me since I've gotten more involved with the church how many people it takes it does uh, to make sure that when the church fills up with people that mass can even happen. That's right. Um, it is. It's a, it's, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that you're not aware of, really, when you just kind of come in, you know. Sometimes that's the reason the last mass is late. <laughs> I'm speaking from personal experience. you got to make sure everything is in order before you begin. Well, and you have finance committees, you've got the the maintenance, you've got, you know, there's all those things that just magically happen. You That's know, right. somebody's got to come in and vacuum the carpet, too. That's right. Somebody's got to turn on and off the lights as well. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it, it is, it is, it does take a Herculean effort to make sure that the, uh, the masses happen. Let's talk a little bit about um, do you want to talk about uniforms next? Let's talk about uniforms and the, the, the dress. Okay, the uh, dress of the clergy? The dress of the clergy. And I I, I want to start out with a military comparison. Okay. Um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in the military, mm -hmm. everybody has a rank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the two bars as a captain and the colonels were uh, the little eagle and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the, the the one thing I was going to ask you about when you were talking about uh, cardinals mm -hmm. is in the military, you have brigadier generals and major generals. There's two-star generals and three-star generals. Is there a ranking to the cardinals based on... There is. It's not well known, but there is. There are cardinal bishops 
which most of them are today, cardinal bishops. And then there are cardinal priests, and then there are cardinal deacons, and we haven't talked about that at all. But I actually had it on my list. Did you really? <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's funny. That's where I was headed. So, <laughs> well, that's the influence of the Holy Spirit coming there, down on the table. There you go. See, we don't we don't have Father James or Father Marty here, but we've got the Holy Spirit, so that's good. <laughs> uh, but we have those ranks. Now, most of the cardinals, I think, if I'm not mistaken, today are cardinal bishops. In other words, they are cardinals, but they're also bishops. But they don't have to be. You could be a cardinal. They could make you as a layman a cardinal. The pope could make you a cardinal if he wanted to. Because the main function of the cardinal, he has two functions. He is an advisor to the pope. Mm-hmm. And then he is also an elector when when we don't have a pope, when the pope has died. Okay. And so he is one of those who's commissioned to vote for a new pope. So neither of these are liturgical roles. So you don't have to be a priest or a deacon or a bishop in order to be a cardinal. But I think that they are all bishops today, because if you don't have that office of bishop, that, that uh, inhibits you quite a bit as far as doing other things in the church. So I think they're all bishops today. A cardinal is the advisor to the pope. So... Each of them is head of a particular, it's a big word, dicastery in the church. A dicastery is a certain uh, a certain group in the church running a particular part of the church. And so each one of these is headed by a cardinal. It would be like very, very similar to the United States Congress. We just elected a new Congress, and they're all concerned now about getting committee assignments uh, the, yeah. the dicastery would be like a, a spiritual or like a religious uh, committee uh, whose main job is focusing on one particular aspect of administration or spirituality or liturgy or something within the church itself, assisting the Pope. He can't be, he can't be aware of all of the work of every one of these committees, mm-hmm. so he needs help to do it. So that's the... Um when we talked about the Vatican being its own country, right? Um, they actually have, uh, if, if the Vatican is its own country, does that make the Pope the president? Well, they don't call him the president. <laughs> they, he's, he's the sovereign of Vatican City. And so he is the head. Uh, he has total uh, legislative, ju- uh, executive, and judicial authority in the Catholic Church. Unlike the United States, we have our government, but the government's divided into three different areas. Well, here, those areas are in one man, like a sovereign would be, like a king or mm-hmm. a queen would be. Mm-hmm. So uh, he is the sovereign of Vatican City, but uh, like so many other things, he needs help in running Vatican City and running Vatican, and running the Vatican City state because it's a separate state. And so uh, uh, he has people who assist him. So there is a president of Vatican City, but he doesn't have the authority that the Pope himself has. And that would be the the Roman Curia would be the part of the, I don't know, business management or... Uh... Yes, it would be both. It would, the Roman Curia would be the advisors to the Holy Father, usually about things that affect... The, the the local church, you know, the church in locally established in, in Rome, the Roman Curia would be in charge of the various dicasteries. Each one of these these men who is like the chairman of a committee would also be part of the Roman Curia. So Curia just means a, a group of advisors who help out the top person. 
And and not all of those people are religious people. They're not all bishops and cardinals. No, and, that's and right. Each there are lay people in in roles in those absolutely advising the pope absolutely um, and helping with finances and all that other stuff. Absolutely that goes on. right. And they try to get the best that they possibly can. And then as a as a country, they have diplomats in the the, the Vatican has a diplomat in the United States because the Vatican City State is a separate country, a city state. It has uh, a regular diplomatic corps. There's a special school in Rome that you are appointed to go to if they think that you have potential uh, to learn how to be a Vatican diplomat. And then after you learn all the ins and outs of diplomacy, then they send you throughout the world. Uh, every major country in the world has got an ambassador from the Vatican. Uh, in the United States, we have uh, one here uh, as well. And uh, so th their role is to uh, to officially negotiate uh, the various things uh, between the Vatican and, and uh, the other countries. Is there something like in the military, they wear, you know, bars and leaf clusters and that kind of stuff sure. to designate ranks. Is, can you look at a bishop or a cardinal and tell... Uh, like when I see Bishop Zincula walking around, he's mm -hmm. usually got a chain under his jacket. Right. Um, and I see a lot of bishops that, that have that right. chain. Um, do, do, is there that kind of... Uh, That's the most obvious sign of a bishop. If you see a priest, he's wearing a black suit and a Roman collar usually, uh, or he might be in the cassock, the, the, the gown. Uh, but if he has a cross around his neck or if he has a chain with a cross at the end of it, usually he's a bishop. And if he's wearing a purple zacchetto or a purple uh, beanie-like, whatever you want skull to call cap, it, skull cap, uh, then it's quite obvious that the man is, is more than just an ordinary priest. He's, he's a bishop. Uh, not only by what what you see in that, but also by the color, you can tell where he ranks in the church. So if he wears ordinary black cassock, he's an ordinary priest uh, or a pastor. Uh, if he's wearing a black cassock with, uh, with red buttons, uh, he's a bishop usually or a monsignor. A monsignor is just a special pre priest that has been given a special honor in the church <clears throat> because of his position. Um, and if he's wearing the skull cap, if it's purple, um, then that means that he's a bishop. If it's red, it means he's a cardinal. Um, if he has a red uh, gown on, then definitely he's a cardinal. Red is a sign of a cardinal. Cardinals were originally uh, supposed to realize that they were supposed to be always willing to give their life for the church. So red is the color of blood. And so that's where we get that. that color. Oh, okay. That's where that came from. And then, of course, if it's white, if it's all white, the only one who wears all white in the church is the Holy Father. And uh, he has a white cassock and a white zucchetto or a white skull cap, with one exception. It seems like we're always giving you exceptions every time I try to explain <laughs> something. But uh, uh, Father, uh, Father Dennis came from Africa when he was here, and, and he had a white cassock. I don't know if he wore it here or not, but the African priests and the priests in India and priests in the climates where it's really warm, instead of wearing black, which attracts the heat, they would mm -hmm. wear white. So many times if you go to Africa and you see the priests, they'll be dressed all in white. So you might be confused if you're not familiar with uh, all the stuff we're talking about today. 
you might think that you have all these little popes running around, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some of the Eastern countries, like in Japan, right. um, white is the signal or white is the color for death. Right, right. And in, in the United States, white is the color for weddings. and Weddings, for, right, uh, for, joy, for joyful occasions and so forth. That's the reason that a priest, a lot of times uh, people would ask me, why do you always wear black? Well, black is a sign that there's more to life than just this human life that we have here on earth. So it's a sign that we, we're not afraid of death, but we've given up everything in order to minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we wear black. It's a, it's a very distinctive thing. The only other people that wear black uh, in the United States are people that are associated with funerals or undertakers and people like that, or widows or something like that. But um, uh, it's a sign that we've uh, given up everything to follow Christ, and we're not afraid of death. Mm-hmm. Well, then what's the, what's the significance of the habit for nuns? And, and, well, it's probably the same thing as the, the black for priests. Right. The habits developed, uh, yeah, it is pretty much the same. Many of the religious habits came out of the, uh, uh, what was the normal feminine uh, wear uh, during the Middle Ages. And uh, some nuns, for instance, like the BVMs and the Blessed Virgin Mary sisters and some of the other sisters, uh, chose the the garb of a, a widow as the as the uh, habit that they wore. Uh, others during the Civil War, the uh, Sisters of St. Vincent de Paul, for instance, would have a large headdress so that they could go out in the battlefields and tend the wounded, and they wouldn't be shot at by the enemy, that they would be easily seen because of their, their habit. So... Uh, but each of the habits were a little bit different depending on the religious order that the that the person uh, mm-hmm. was drawn to. Well, and as I understood it, as I understand it from what I was reading, the 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 habit is also that they are set aside for God, right? Um, and so they can be easily recognized by the whole society as being dedicated to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. When I watch EWTN, the the brothers and priests down at EWTN, they wear a brown, like a tunic almost, right. and, and tied at the waist. Right. Um, kind of probably inspired by John the Baptist, maybe? Well, Somewhat. I think probably by St. Francis more than anything oh, else, because okay. they're Franciscan brothers and Franciscan priests, yeah. So many of these habits came into existence as a result of the founder uh, St. Benedict, you know, he wore a, wore a black habit and uh, St. Francis wore a very simple brown habit. And so that's where they got these from. Um, okay, let's go back to the, I want to talk a little bit. Um, we, we mentioned that in the United States, we're, we're in the Western tradition of the church. Right. And then you, you mentioned also the Eastern tradition of the church. Right. And in the Eastern tradition of the church, there are what, six or seven uh, tradition, sub-traditions or traditions under there. I, I found Alexandrian, Byzantine, Chaldean, Antiochian, and Armenian. And then I also, uh, probably one of the more famous ones is the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And the Greek Orthodox Church, their leader is His All Holiness, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, 
and Bartholomew is the 270th successor to the Apostle Andrew and spiritual leader of 300 million Orthodox Christians worldwide. Why is it such a big deal when Bartholomew and the Pope get together? Probably because they are the heads of their own respective uh, groups, their own respective uh, religious organizations. A couple of things probably that are important to include here. We believe that, that what happened is when the apostles, when our Lord went into heaven and the apostles scattered, he gave them the commission to go forth and preach the gospel to all the nations. And we believe that the many of the apostles went to the east and they, they founded their own churches. It was the same church. They all believed the same thing but they founded their own churches in the lands that they went to. Like their tradition said that St. Thomas went to uh, uh, India. St. Andrew went where? Where did you say that he was in? He was Greek Orthodox. The, Greek, yeah, the Greeks, yeah, to Greece. And so they, they went to these places and they, they formed what we call patriarchates. And uh, these were uh, special, all Christian churches. It wasn't called Catholic yet. Um, we didn't get that title Catholic until a couple of centuries after after our Lord went into heaven. But uh, they, you had these Eastern uh, authorities, and uh, they all claim to go back to one of the apostles. And so they devise, they devised their own liturgy, their own sacramental system, although they all believed in the seven sacraments and all the rest. Another distinction that has to be made is there was a big split in the, in the Christian faith in the year 1000 uh, between the East and the West. And it was a political split, but it affected the faith. And so those who, who uh, were not willing to follow the Roman tradition called themselves Orthodox. And so today we have Catholics, we believe that they're truly Catholic, but they don't call themselves Catholic. They call themselves Orthodox. So you have the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and all the rest, mostly in the Eastern part of the world. And they have a liturgy that is similar, but not identical to what the uh, the Roman liturgy is like. So the, the Greek Orthodox Church then, for example, uh, uh, well, let's see, how do I say this? The Roman Catholic Church, when when in the Bible, when Jesus said, "Upon this rock, I will build my church," mm -hmm. on Peter, "Upon this rock." Yeah. So the Greek Orthodox Church basically says, "Andrew, upon this rock, I will build my church." Kind of. Well, they probably wouldn't accept that. They would say that, that they believe that the church is founded uh, on the apostles, but they would say all the apostles were equal, right, uh, rather than one person. And, um, and that's the way they look at the Pope. The reason that they separated from Rome is because the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, believes that Jesus gave the authority to shepherd the church uh, the, to St. Peter. And Peter went to Antioch, and then Peter went to Rome. Peter died in Rome, and he was buried in the Vatican Hill. And the Orthodox do not accept. They accept the Pope as the Bishop of Rome, but he's just an equal to all the other bishops, the other other patriarchs. Another title for the Pope would be Patriarch of the West. So uh, they would recognize him as a leader of his own particular area, but not the leader of the okay. entire church. Okay, that makes that makes more sense now. I understand. It's the, a little uh, bit the, complicated. Well, it's quite a bit complicated, actually. <laughs> but 
So, so when you're when you're talking about not being in union with the Holy See, that's right, or not being in union with the Pope, that's what we're talking. That's about. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, which is really interesting because we do recognize the validity of the liturgies from all of these places. So, uh, you know, we believe that the the Mass, for instance, they don't call it the Mass; they call it the the Eucharist, or they call it the Divine Liturgy. Uh, we believe that that's as valid as ours. You know. We believe that their priests, when they consecrate bread and wine, it truly becomes the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And they recognize our liturgy as valid, but it's in the administration of the church that they have difficulties. So they believe in the transubstantiation. Absolutely. We have the same doctrine as they do. Okay. They have great devotion to the Blessed Mother. They have the same sacraments that we do, even though they may administer them in a different way. Yeah, I remember... Four or five years ago, I can't remember how long it's been since CAFE stopped uh, operations, but mm -hmm. I, I remember um, when they were building the fertilizer plant down in Weaver. Okay. Uh, there were Coptic Christians mm -hmm. who were who came from, I can't remember where they were from. Anyway, the, the Coptic Christians were here building the, the fertilizer plant. Okay. And they used to come up and use uh, the St. John's Church Sure. For their for their celebrations, yeah, and they came and did a presentation at Cafe. Um, oh, and I bet that was sang some songs and talked about their beliefs and their faith. Sure. And and I believe you said the Coptics. I'm not sure if they're still around or not. I think uh, so. I I ran into a Coptic priest uh, Christmas time uh, three or four years ago out at Walmart, and uh, it was interesting because he was in his full his full habit with the. With the, you know, they they have a special headgear that they wear, you know, a black mm -hmm. headgear that uh, I, I went up and introduced myself. And he was quite, we, we, we felt that we were like brothers, you know, because we had the same faith. We believed in the same things, even though we expressed it differently. Very good. Uh, let's uh, let's bring it down a little closer to home now. Okay. Let's let's uh, let's come in a little and talk about the, the, the organization of the church. So worldwide, the Catholic Church is split into seven regions, and it's pretty much divided along continental. Yes, uh, it is. Divides yes, two. It is. Um, the United States is in the North American region with Mexico and Canada, and the United States is divided into thirty-four dioceses and the U.S. military diocese, which is all over the globe. Yeah. Um, and that's headed up, I'm sure, by a, an archbishop. It's an archbishop for military services. Yes. Okay. Um, and then Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska make up Conference Region 9. Mm -hmm. And to bring it closer to home yet, the province of Iowa is made up of the four dioceses of Davenport, Dubuque, Des Moines, and Sioux City. Correct. And they are headquartered in the Archdiocese of Dubuque. Correct. And I see Father James is just coming back. Father to James has just walked in. Welcome back, sir. Welcome back. Thank you. I want you to know I have not said anything bad about you while you were gone. Well, I would hope you wouldn't say that while I'm doing God's work. <laughs> Unfortunately, I got called out to the hospice house for someone who was very close. Mm. That's good, though. I'm glad. That's a wonderful thing. You have a wonderful associate pastor. We've been talking about pastors and associate pastors and right. deacons. And Father James is the associate pastor or the vicar here at uh, Divine Mercy Parish in Burlington and West Burlington. And Dodgeville. And Dodgeville. And Dodgeville. 
And Burlington is a member of the Davenport Diocese. Right. Um, and we are in the Keokuk Deanery Correct. of the Davenport Diocese. How many deaneries are there in the Davenport Diocese? Six. There's six? Okay. So there's Keokuk, Ottumwa, Grinnell, Iowa City, Davenport, and Clinton. Okay. Iowa City is Iowa the one City. we couldn't we come up with. that before. Right. Okay. We were talking about it before we went on the air, and we, we could come up with five, but we didn't know what the sixth one was. We were pretty sure there were six. So the deaneries are pretty good size because the Keokuk deanery goes from, what is it, Clinton to Keokuk? No. No. Uh, we've got Davenport in between there. We've got four counties in the Keokuk deanery. So you have Des Moines County, Henry County, Van Buren County, and then Lee County. Lee County. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that's a pretty good chunk of land. And Father Marty is the dean of that particular deanery. So he's the priest in charge of that of the organization in that particular if we have a problem with uh uh trying to get help or trying to get another priest to help us out and we can't get anybody we call father marty <laughs> so then the the deaneries are broken down into parishes right and the parishes serve a geographical area with boundaries as correct. i understand it correct and so divine mercy parish is all of Des Moines County? No. No. Because you also have Dodgeville, which is a parish. Oh, okay. So, like, geographically, you're going to look at somewhere over the halfway point between Dodgeville and probably West Burlington, where Mary Pats is, to kind of find kind of the northern kind of an edge. There's not necessarily a map anymore, per se, where the parish's geographical coverage area is. Because, like, if you went up to Mount Pleasant, that's the only parish in the county, yeah. in Henry County. And the same with Van Buren, Van Buren yeah. which has a, what was the name of that little town? Farmington. There you go. Thank you. I was just there, so I know. I'm familiar <laughs> First and only time I've been. Driving through Shimmick Forest, the state <laughs> forest. Um, and then I, I, I've got a couple questions about... Well, I was going to talk about religious orders, but I, the, the, the one that's really bugging me is, what's the difference between a nun and a sister? A nun is, there is, a is in solemn profession of vows. Uh, so a nun is like a, a Carmelite or a Franciscan or a Benedictine, whereas a sister is a, an association of religious women. It, from, from the standpoint of most people, you wouldn't know the difference because... They called nuns sister, and and they referred to all sisters as nuns. But uh, a nun is is in a more um, oh, how, do I, how, how would you say? Does, that? does it have to do with cloister or so all cloisters are nuns? Yeah, I get myself in all kinds of trouble if I said that nuns were more religious than sisters because that's not true. <laughs> but they're they're associated with more historically religious orders like Franciscans, Dominicans. And uh, cloister groups like the uh, and the Carmelites and uh, those kinds of things. So, okay, and is it is that same distinction? Does that apply to priests and monks? Is, is there a difference? I mean, is a monk a priest and a, and a, a priest a monk, or is it just more title? I would say, like a monk, like there's going to be monks who are priests, and then usually there's going to be brothers who are not priests. Yeah. Brothers, okay. Yeah. 
So you could be a brother in an order and not necessarily be a priest. Right. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. And then the other thing I was going to, we're down to, we're getting down to the end here and we didn't think we'd get a whole hour. We did. See, you can cover a while, while I don't know. I think. Well, I get the emergency I phone think, call. You step right in there, like. I think the people are sick of me, to be honest. With you. <laughs> You're like one of those emergency goaltenders. They, you know, find somebody on the street and put in the net for a game. I want to talk about the the diocese a little bit. I was doing a little research, and when we moved to town in 1985, I can't believe we've been in town that long. Anyway. I somebody had told me that Des Moines County was like eighty percent Catholic. Oh wow! Back in the back in the mid eighties, nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. No, and I don't think that's probably right. I probably more like forty percent. Yeah, I would think so. I think even less than that. I, I, if anybody can shed any light on that, let us know. Yeah. But I was also doing some research, and I came upon a site that had um, the percentages of Catholics in the diocese. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked. It went back to 1920 or 1900 or something like that. And the highest percent, the percentages ever got was back in the 50s and 60s when it made almost 16% of the diocese, the Davenport diocese, were Catholic. Mm -hmm. And today, the most recent numbers they had showed only 11% of the diocese was Catholic. 10.83% December 31st, 2021. That's pretty cool. Really? 10.83%. I knew he'd have the stats. So it's almost 11%. Yeah. And, And like, I would say, like, if you go up to the Archdiocese of Dubuque, I would say that there'd be, there'd be a higher percentage of Catholics. Oh, yeah. But I would say, though, the farther you go west, the less amount of Catholics per capita, kind of that percentage goes down. And the other number I thought was shocking was that the number of priests in the diocese mm-hmm. and the number of people per priest, mm-hmm. it was like 888 or something like that. So there's Catholic population of 85,356. Of that, there are currently priests of the diocese of Davenport. There's 92 of us. Mm-hmm. But that includes retired as well in there. So 92 priests for 85,000 people. Yeah. Okay. Because the total population in the 22 counties is estimated at 788,153. Okay. So 85,000, that'd be roughly 11%. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's 885, give or take, per priest. That was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and those numbers aren't going to get any better. The scenario that um, has been presented to the priests and the lay trustees, this would have been last year, year before that, is current estimate is by 2030. The estimate is that we'll have 22 pastors for 22 counties. There'll also be three parochial vicars, and there will also be three priests. Or not assigned to a parish. So that might be the Newman Center, mm-hmm. St. Ambrose, the University of Iowa Hospitals. The one kind of saving grace is, you know, is we've been blessed with, you know, the ability to have international priests come over. Um, so it's been able to help us out because there are priests not from the diocese that have come in to help us in parishes. Mm-hmm. And you just think of like the precious blood fathers mm-hmm. down in the southwest corner of the diocese where they've sent us three of their priests. 
Top cover. Very good. Well, we are uh, we are running out of time, so do you want to give us a closing prayer? You or bet. You Wonderful. I feel like that was the uh, longest show I've ever sat in. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Father Mike, I think we've been dissed. I think we have. Well, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted for shouting justice. Thank you. Know, I told him that you said that that was my favorite attitude. All right, Father James. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come together to break open the Word of God and to learn more about the Church and its structure and how it will ultimately help to lead us closer to your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We pray for all those who will die today, that they may be welcomed into the Heavenly Kingdom. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And And with with your your spirit. spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Father James. Thank you. Once again, we have reached the end of the show. I have to admit that was a very interesting discussion about the organization of the church. As a worldwide organization with 1.2 billion members worldwide, Managing an organization the size of the Catholic Church is no small undertaking, and it all starts right here in our beautiful parish. Pastor's perspective for next week, the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time, will continue where we left off this week with Chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel, and we will be talking about some of the famous and not-so-famous martyrs of the Church. Until next week, remember God loves you and has a plan for your life but sin separates us from God's plan for us. We invite you to attend Mass to receive the sanctifying graces to become the person God created you to be. Consider this a personal invitation from us to come home to the Catholic Church. If you are attending Mass, invite someone to join you. I'd like to thank you, Father Mike, for... uh, for, for being half of the dynamic duo tonight. Well, thank you. And Father James, thanks for uh, coming back, I guess. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Father Phils, for covering for Father Marty and I. This was a big job, and I tried to do the best I could. <laughs> I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us next week on the radio. Listen on the website. Go to TuneIn.com, or we are also now available on Google Podcasts to listen to the show. Until then, share Christ with everyone you need. We'll talk to you next week. Good night and God bless. Good night. Good night. You can hear Pastor's Perspective every evening at 9 o'clock after the Rosary on KCDM. You can also pick up the show at 5 p.m. on Saturdays and 2 p.m. on Sundays. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. 